0: You are listening to an Emmanuel Community Church podcast. For more sermons or information about the church, visit our website at Well, Good morning, church. It's good to see you all. Uh, so We're still getting to know each other. I've been here about six months. I so thought I should tell you a little bit more about myself. Uh, I'm the youngest of four siblings. I don't know if you know that. So all you youngest out there, where you at? Yeah, all right. I got it. Well, so now we hear it all the time as youngest that we have it easy, right? Uh, And I got to be honest, I could argue that, but on some levels, I think we do have it better. And I'll tell you why. First, let me show you a picture of me and my siblings uh, back when I was cute. uh, (laughs) Back when I was cute. So I just showing off how I look cute there. and My two older brothers look like dorks. So, uh, my sister's, of course, being a cutie, too. She's the oldest, and then I have two older brothers, Ben and Jesse. And um, not that my sister isn't awesome, but I want to tell you a little bit about my brothers. Um, here's a picture of us when we were young adults. Uh, Sorry, house date. Just want to rub it in a little bit more. Uh, it's my one chance, okay? Ten years of misery, and just give us this one year, okay? Okay. Um, <laughs> So anyway, so these are my two brothers, Ben and Jesse. Jesse's on the left, my brother Ben is on the right. Um, And uh, I just want to say, as a youngest sibling, there's a real value that you get. uh, And I mean this, like, especially if you're younger and you've got older siblings, like, don't miss this. You get to learn a ton from watching... Your older siblings. You get to learn from their mistakes and what not to do. Ooh, he said that to dad and that did not go well for him, so probably I should not do that, right? Um, and you get to learn a lot of what really works. It's a real skill that is reserved for younger Siblings, and I encourage you to take advantage of that. So, a couple of things I learned from my two brothers. Uh, Jesse, uh, he's three years older than me. He's again that one on the left. Um, man, he was like he was born with a book in his hand. It feels like he was a guy who, uh, in middle school, was reading the Iliad and the Odyssey and liking it on his own, like not for school. He was reading Russian literature, Dostoevsky and stuff. And and he's a guy who, for his entire life, has just been somebody who reads deeply. And reads broadly in such a way as it informs the way that he relates to the world. And so he's got a depth and emotional capacity to see context and to understand situations on every scale. One-on-one in a room or broadly politically. All kinds of, he's just got this perspective that is informed by a deep, passionate reading. And I would have never been that guy. I really don't think I would have been. But it turns out, thanks to him and a few others in my life, I've become quite a reader. I love reading. Uh, He introduced me to primary sources. So like my understanding of the Bible is informed by literature that was written by ancient Near Eastern writers, the the Greeks, the the Romans, and how that just gives me a a sense of things culturally that has helped me and served me in huge ways when it comes to how I live my life, let alone uh, great literature like Willa Cather or John Steinbeck. Some of my favorite authors are because he just slid me a book. Just this week, a book showed up in my, in my mailbox. He just does that once in a while. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He's like, here, just read this. And, and it turns out half the people I really love reading all were recommendations from Jesse. Love that guy. And then there's Ben, my, my older brother. He's older by, than Jesse by two more years. Uh, he's uh, a really intelligent, solid dude on so many levels. But I'll never forget this one time. I'm in middle school. He's in high school. And he was one of those guys who could dunk a basketball when he was a freshman in high school. He's only six feet tall. So he worked hard at it. Uh, he, he has a work ethic that's pretty incredible to me. And I remember I'm this little punk and I'm playing my hot shot basketball player brother. And he's just crushing my soul. Just crushing my soul. Ruthless. Right? And I get to this point where I'm ready to just give up. I'm like, what's the point? you know all i have is a right-handed layup and he just keeps smashing it against the board and there's nothing i can do and 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 he looks at me i'm i'm ready to quit and he looks at me he's like Josh listen you will never get good at basketball or really anything else if you don't learn to quit worrying about whether you win he's like you will never be good at anything you want to be good at if you're not willing to lose and do the hard thing and play against people who are better than you Never forgot it. He might have forgot saying that. Probably making him sound cooler than he actually was. But uh, I never forgot that. And that's an ethic that has stuck with me for a long time. To quit worrying about how I look on the court. Quit worrying about trying to compete and be competitive and win. Winning is great, but you will not become a winner if you're not willing to lose a lot and play against people who are better than you. Man, that one's stuck. Do hard things. That's my brother, Ben. So I've learned some lessons from my brothers. Why do I tell you all that? Well, because we've been in this series with, in Romans for like ever, right? We've been studying Romans for ever. And uh, we've been in a book where Paul, the writer of Romans has been teaching us and teaching us and teaching us. In chapters one through 11, he just laid down tons and tons of deep content. Content that informs life like, hey, we're all broken sinners, and that has a real impact on everything. I'm on our own we are powerless to make life work in a broken world. And the gospel that Jesus comes in and loves us as we are and makes a way through his death on the cross so that we can we can have a relationship with a God who really loves us and we can have life and then on top of that we can be transformed from whatever state we're in of loss and hurt and frustration with ourselves and with the world, we could be transformed to see things the way God does in light of his relationship with us. And we could become like him on so many levels. We can actually love people, not just say it, not just consume people, but we could become people who bring genuine godlike love to the world in him. Like that's heavy stuff. And he teaches us all this stuff in 1 through 11. And then in 12 through 15, the series we're in right now, he's painting us a picture of how it might look, how it could look if we really believed 1 through 11 and lived into it. It's heavy stuff. Are you exhausted? I'm a a little tired. And so it's been teaching, 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 teaching. Well, what's about to happen today in our text is we're about to see that Paul's done teaching. No new content. Romans, the teaching element of Romans is over. Take a deep breath. Give yourselves a hand. You made it. You made it. It's been like over a year. Very excited. I'm excited too. We're done with all the teaching. But this is that point in the book where it might be tempting to just close. When the preacher closes his Bible, you know, you're just like, oh, we're done. This is that point in Romans where Paul seems to be closing his Bible and we would tune out. We might just tune out because he's like shifting gears into telling us about himself. So, why do I talk about my brothers? Because this is precisely the perspective I think we need to take for the rest of our time in Romans is to stop thinking about Paul as a teacher and start thinking of him as an older brother. Just to look at the example that Paul is going to give us is now he shifts from teaching to telling us about his life and what he's doing uh, uh, to, to, to not tune out, but to take the posture of the younger sibling and look at what he's saying, how he's saying it, what he's doing, how he's doing it as a model for us. Does that make sense? Let's learn some lessons from how Paul's living. Not just what he taught us in Romans 1 through 14 and a half. Got it? All right. So I'm going to invite you to take the posture of a younger sibling. Even you older siblings in the room, trust me, you can do it. I promise you. And that, so we're going to enter into Romans chapter 15, verses 14 to 22. This new section, this kind of final move of the book of Romans. And we're going to stop worrying about the teaching of his content. And start focusing in on how he's living and how that's a model for us. A couple reminders. We've been in this series for a while. We've got two high-level thoughts we've been giving you throughout. One is this. The gospel absorbed is the gospel applied. Romans 12 to 15 gives us a picture of what it looks like when someone's transformed by the love of Jesus Christ. That's what this mini-series is about. The gospel absorbed is the gospel applied. And what I love about our text today is we get to see Paul living it out. Living out a gospel that he has really absorbed. Right? And the second thought is this, that Paul's applications, they might seem disorganized to us. If you've been in this series, that makes some sense. But there's a purpose to his approach. Not a word is wasted. Um, In Romans 12 to 15, Paul's applying the rule of gospel love to specific challenges his original readers were facing and that we all still face today. That's not news to us. So let's uh, get our Bibles open or your Bible phone or whatever app you're using to Romans chapter 15 starting in verse 14. And what we're going to see Paul do today is he's gonna, we're going to see three moves in the text. The first is just one verse and the next two are a little bit longer. We're going to see that he's going to give us a call to confidence in verse 14 like an older sibling. And then he, we're going to look at him as our model for ministry in 15 to 17 and as a model for our mission in 18 to 22 like little siblings looking at Paul. One final thought before we dive in. Um, I don't know about you, but when you spend 11 chapters in Romans hearing and reading about the gospel, you might expect some call to be evangelistic, right? But have you noticed that in the application so far in our entire series, it's really not been about how we share Christ with the world, it's been about how we get along? Have you noticed that? How we love one another, how we become transformed into people who actually, as a body of Christ, love each other well, even, with, even through our differences. Have you noticed that? There's been a conspicuous absence of a missional call to go out in a book that's all about the gospel. Well, this is what I'm telling you. One, two thoughts. One, um, I think we often as Christians get confused and we confuse the world because we take this, we know Jesus and so we share Jesus, and we skip this, we got to become healthy in Christ's step. And so our message is so often confusing to the world. Because you have a lot of believers espousing a gospel and cramming it in people's faces who don't know how to love each other. Isn't that weird? Can you see why the world would be confused? And can you see why Paul spends so much of his ink saying, hey, the platform from which we share this faith of ours has got to be one of spiritual health in ourselves with the Lord and in ourselves with each other. Follows? You follow? That's a big deal. And that's why he spends so much of his ink in this whole series talking about loving one another well. But second thought, he's not actually failing to give us a missional call. In fact, it comes in today, but he's doing that by his example, not necessarily by how he teaches us. And that's what I want you to see today is that if there's a missional call to share your faith in the book of Romans, there's a couple spots throughout, but this is actually where it kicks in. One of those, just look at how Paul lives moments. And so let's dive in. We're going to read the text and we're going to start with this call to confidence. And it starts in Romans chapter 15, verse 14. He says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. Now, that could sound a little nerdy and we could miss something really important if we don't slow down and look at this. See, well, here's what's happening. You just had 14 and a half chapters of heavy, 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 heavy teaching. And I think Paul has an intuition in his writing where he recognizes that his readers probably feel a lot like you and I have. Just plain exhausted. Overwhelmed. I mean, he paints this picture of this incredible possibility for how we could live if we understand these incredible truths. But have you ever in this whole series in Romans just kind of sat back and said, whoa, this this is a lot. Have you felt insecure? I have. Is it just me? Right? So here's what's happening. I think Paul, as an older brother, as he shifts from teaching to modeling, is putting his hand on the shoulder of his Roman readers and just looking in the eye saying, look up here, look up here. Hey, it's okay. It's okay. You can do this. In Christ, you can do this. Everything we've talked about is not out of reach for you. What he says is this: the Roman church had everything it needed to absorb and apply the gospel as he had laid it out. There's not a thing he wrote that wasn't. Doable in Christ for his readers, as big as it is. He goes on, he says, They were filled with the goodness of Christ and the knowledge of his word. You see how he says that in the text? I believe, I see you, you yourselves are full of goodness. Well, the goodness, as we understand through the book of Romans, isn't inherent in them, it's in their absorption of Christ and the gospel. The goodness of Christ is now in them. As they, come to faith, as they came to faith with him. You're full of goodness. That is true about you, he's saying. And you're full of the knowledge of God's word, the truth. You, you, the truth is in you and it's in front of you in God's word. And because of those two things being true about you, Roman readers, you are able to sharpen one another. You're able, you are able to to help one another grow into the image of Christ. I use that word sharpen because I love Proverbs 27, 17. Iron sharpens iron as one man or woman sharpens another. Right? Uh, He's taking this biblical principle saying there's not a person sitting here. If you have claimed Jesus as your savior, whether that was yesterday, 10 minutes ago, or 25 years ago, you are capable of, Because of Christ's presence in your life and God's word in front of you or in in you to help each other grow. To help each other realize everything Paul has been saying. Does that make sense? That's big stuff. That's a big brother moment. He's just got that hand on the shoulder, looking them in the eye saying, it's okay. I know you feel overwhelmed. I know it's hard for you to imagine. One step at a time, you can do this. But here's the thing. The same goes for Emmanuel Community Church. This is true of you, Emmanuel, not just the Roman readers. If you have felt overwhelmed, if you have felt insecure, if you have felt less than capable of living into the gospel as Paul has described it, Paul is putting his hand on your shoulder and my shoulder and saying, it's going to happen. Just lean in. You've got this. You're capable. Emmanuel, Do you hear that? You're capable. Amen? Because of Christ." We can become people who love one another deeply, affectionately, effectively, and transforming into the image of Jesus together in such a way that the world will see people who love them as much as God loves them. That can happen here. That's heavy timber right there. That's a big deal. So now he's given us this encouragement, and he's shifting gears, and he's going to kind of give an update on just himself. The pronouns in the book shift from we and you to I and me. That's what's happening here. And it's a big move in the book. So we're going to look at Paul as a model for our ministry first, as a model. We're going to look at what he's saying and just pull something out of that. So let's read verses 15 and following. Paul says, uh, but on some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. So that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. So there's a ton we could pull out of this, but I want to just pull out one key thing As as Paul is our model for ministry. I'm going to say this, that Paul is an example of someone fully devoted to loving God and loving people with his spiritual gifts. As you read this, it just oozes off the page. He's completely and totally devoted to helping people who are far from God become close to God in Jesus Christ. It's what he's passionate about. It's how he measures himself. Well, why do I say with his spiritual gifts? Well, because there's a little Easter egg hiding in there. No pun intended. There's a little Easter egg in there. uh, uh when he says the phrase, the grace given me, given me, in verse 15, it points back to his discussion on spiritual gifts in Romans 12. That was our first week of this little series, the law of love. The grace given me. That word grace in the original language is the same word for gift. It's a word, it's a word that's used in, in all kinds of contexts. as an unmerited favor, something I didn't earn. It's a gift. So in effect, he's saying, by the gift given to me, I say... All right. Well, that points back to Romans 12.3 and Romans 12.6, the conversation we had some weeks ago. In 12.3, Paul says, for by the grace given to me, I say, it's the same exact phrase. And what he says is in verse 6, having gifts or graces that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. So what Paul is saying here is by the grace given to me, I say, you know, this is what I'm doing by the grace given to me, by the gifts that God has given to me. He's pointing us back to a conversation I don't want to rehab with you today. I'd love to, but we don't have time. So I want to point you back to that first week. But a couple big ideas here. What Paul's doing in this text is by using his gifts to work out his calling, Paul's modeling the truth of what he taught us. His gifts of teaching, apostleship, leadership, Writing. The book of Romans, as we read it right here, is an example of Paul living out what he's been teaching us. That he's leveraging the gifts that God has given him to bring people who are far from God into relationship with God, including you and me. The book of Romans, as we read it, is proof of what Paul's teaching. That if we will lean into our gifts, if we will understand the gifts that God's given us as believers, lean into them, leverage them, and like bring them into the center of the circle and serve people with those gifts, God will move through us. If we'll labor over that, understanding our gifts and giving them to others, God will move through us. You hear that? It's not a new message in the book of Romans, but it's sitting right here and Paul's proving it. How long do you think it took him to write the book of Romans? you think he just sat down and like knocked it out in 10 minutes? Or do you think he labored and labored and labored with the gift that God has given him, a theological clarity, a mind for communication? His his call as an apostle to be somebody who shared the gospel where it wouldn't otherwise be shared, to bring clarity where there was confusion. Those are gifts that Paul clearly had. And he's leveraging them here. That's how he's modeling for us what it looks like to be someone who cares about their call to ministry in Christ. So I would ask you, what are your spiritual gifts? Did you hear us a few weeks ago when we encouraged you and exhorted you to explore that? to ask yourself, what has God uniquely done in me and how has he uniquely gifted and enabled me to bring value, to bring spiritual service to this body and to this community and to this world? Have you thought about that since then? This is not a shame environment, it's, if your answer is no, it's a spur you on to love and good deeds environment to say, let's get after it. The world needs this, Emmanuel needs this. Our, our efficacy as a church is dependent on each person in each seat thinking about this and leaning in. So let me exhort you to follow Paul's example as a minister, to recognize you are empowered to be a minister. So in Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, all believers are called and capable to use their gifts to draw people into relationship with Jesus. Paul says it flat out in 1 Corinthians 11:1, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. He's leveraging his gifts. So Emmanuel, let's do this. Let's do this. Don't bog down in that pursuit of understanding how you're built and finding and and tweaking and messing with different approaches for how to leverage that more and more and more in the opportunities that God gives you. That's the call. And that's Paul's model for us in ministry. But I want to switch now to his model for us in mission because I think that's what he shows us in the following verses. Let's look at verse 18 to 22. Starting in verse 18. For I will not venture to speak of anything... ...except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God... ...so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation... But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. Again, there's a ton we could point out here, and I'm going to point out a little bit more here than I did in the last section. In fact, I want to give you five observations from this text. We're going to move through five observations of Paul as a model for us when it comes to how we think about mission. And the first observation is plain as the nose on our face. Paul's mission was to produce fully devoted followers of Jesus. This is what he's about. He knows why he's here. He knows why he's walking the earth. And it's to produce fully devoted followers of Jesus. Look at 1518. He says, I won't venture to speak of anything. Nothing I say is worth listening to, he says. I won't bother talking about anything except what Christ is accomplishing through me through his gifts, to bring the Gentiles into obedience, in, to bring them into alignment with, with God by word and, and deed, in, in words and in deeds, not just getting them to say truth, but to experience and live truth in Christ. This is, all, this is what he's about. And, and he goes on in verse 20 and just drives it home. And he says, so I make it my ambition. I'm here to help people know Jesus deeply. And so I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. He is laser focused, crystal clear on why he walks this earth and on why we as Christians walk this earth. Do you ever wonder why you weren't like raptured as soon as you said amen when you asked Jesus to be your savior? You ever wonder that, why we have to continue to live in a broken world full of loss, full of pain, full of suffering, full of anger, full of brokenness? You ever wonder why we can't just go be with Jesus right now? It's because other people need what we've got. Why, I mean, like, we can experience as much of heaven as we want right now in Christ. That's a conversation we'll continue to have as, as much as we're capable of through this veil of flesh and, and this cloud of a broken world. We are absolutely not hopeless as believers in this world, but our hope is rooted in what comes next. So why would he leave us here? Why, why not just take us home and let us have it all right now? Because our neighbor needs what we've got. How did you get what you got in the first place? Somebody had to tell you. We wonder why God doesn't just make it all end. Scripture makes it clear. It's because he's waiting, because he wants more and more and more and more of us to have an opportunity, to have all the time we could possibly need to see the gospel, to hear his love, to understand it, and to be drawn in. To relationship with him. True love multiplies. That's why God created and why he's giving us an opportunity to suffer here in a broken world so that we can participate with him in the multiplication of people who will walk with Jesus, know God fully and be known by him. Amen. Amen. We are a gospel people. This is not an obligation. It's an invitation. It's not, a, it's not a condemnation to a hard life. It's an invitation to participate with God in drawing others into relationship with him and discovering that, the joy of our own relationship more and more and more. Paul's laser focused. He gets that. That's a model for me. As to, to, to press through the noise and the chaos of trying to make this life work in a broken world full of loss and pain and hurt. Like, so this is all there is. No, it's not why I'm here. It's not why we're here. Paul gets that. His mission was to produce fully devoted followers of Jesus, not as notches in his belt to somehow affirm himself, but as people to share in the love of God with. And I think if you've been at Emmanuel, I'm not saying anything you haven't heard a lot. I love this church for many reasons. One is that it's a missional church. Um, But I have a question for you How do we know if we're being successful? in this mission? How do we measure our success? How do we know it's working? I'm going to tell you, based on Paul's model, that Paul's measure of success was was followers of Jesus whose walk matched God's word. That's what we see in the text. He knew the goal. He knew the purpose of his mission. And he also knew how to know, how to figure out if he was being successful, if we were being successful. And his measure was a walk, more and more people coming into relationship with Jesus, not just in word, but in how they lived, evident in how they lived. Living out God's word. I want to make a couple observations here to explain myself. Well, one is this, that once again, Paul's reflecting the teaching of Jesus when he says what he says in Romans 15, 18. He says, I'm here to bring Gentiles, people who are far from God, to obedience, relationship with Jesus, in a holistic relationship with Jesus, in their word and in their deed. That's, that's how he views success. More people who know Jesus in such a way that his word actually transforms their walk to be like him. That's how I know I'm on target. I want you to see what Jesus said in Matthew 28, 19. To see, he's basically just parroting Jesus. That's the great commission. God's Jesus' call to his church. He says, Go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe or obey, same idea, all that I've commanded you. This is not oppressive language of get them to submit when he says obey and teaching them to observe. This is invitational language of helping them come in alignment with what really works in this world. Teaching them to to observe and obey and lean into and align themselves with the truth of God's love, God's presence, God's sovereignty in the world, in word and in deed. Paul's basically just saying what Jesus has said again and again and again. And so... The idea of our success being rooted in uh, our alignment with, with what really works, being rooted in more people coming to relationship with Jesus in such a way that it is evidenced in how they live, not just what they say, uh, that tells us something about how we can measure our success at Emmanuel. And that's this, that I would say that Paul demonstrated to us that the best way to measure progress is by stories of life change. You're going to hear me say that a lot because I would argue it's really the only metric that matters when it comes to deciding how I as an individual or how we as a church view our progress. Cause see, I've been around church a lot, a lot of big churches, a lot of small churches. And I will tell you that generally speaking, when you ask a pastor or ask a parishioner at a church, Hey, how's your church doing? They're going to talk about one of three things naturally. And I understand why. And the first is body count. How many people come to our church, right? I know that's a little awkward. How many people come to our church, right? the second is budget. How How much revenue does this church generate? How much giving is there? And the third is building, whether that's building programming or building facilities. And guess what Emmanuel has a lot of? All three of those Bs. Bodies, budgets, and buildings. We've got a lot more than most. We are considered in America a megachurch. Did you know that? We've, we've, we've crossed that line into a megachurch. As much as that might be a distasteful sounding word to you, guess what? We win by those three metrics. But I've been to a lot of churches that have those three things that seem to me to be empty of the love and presence of God. Amen? Amen. And I've heard a lot, and I see a lot of fallout on the news because people congratulate themselves. And I think that often, if I'm brutally honest with you, we do this here. We congratulate ourselves because we are big and we have resource. We have all the affirmations that we want to tell ourselves we're being successful. But let me tell you something, Emmanuel Community Church, and I got three fingers pointed back at me, those metrics don't matter. The only metric that matters for a gospel-centered person in a gospel-centered church is, are there stories of life change? Ongoing life change. We never stop growing in Christ on this earth. Am I right? Which means your metric for yourself is, are you more like Jesus in 2024 than you were in 2023 in any tangible way? Can you, can you, can you write me down some bullet points on how God has moved in your life, how you have opened your heart to him, how you've changed your behavior, your attitudes, your emotions? Are we growing as individuals, because that is the platform from which we speak into a world and from which we reach people that they will see and that God will use so that they can come into relationship with him and know him and experience what we're experiencing in our own personal growth. Amen. Stories of life change. That's what Paul's modeling for us. That's what he's excited about. I want to see more people who know God and are experiencing his love, and I want to see evidence of that fact in that they are not only speaking his word and understanding his word, but it is translating out in the way that they live. Some heavy timber. And so you know how we're measuring success at Emmanuel? Stories of life change. You know what I want to hear when I ask how are we doing as a church? Stories of life change names, faces, and change. Amen? That's how we'll know. And if we're not seeing it, then that's what tells us something's off. That's what tells us that we're missing something. And that's what informs the changes and the adjustments we make with our budgets and our buildings. You got it? All right. I got excited there. Woo! All right, so we saw... Two observations so far. We saw Paul's mission. We saw Paul's measure for his mission. A third observation is this. I want to show, show you Paul's means of success was his own bold walk that matched God's bold word. And as you see him describe in, in this text and the following text through the rest of Romans, his kind of experience, his journeys, he's running all over the ancient world. He's fully devoted uh, to, 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 to framing his life around this mission. Right In the way that he's built to do it. Not all of us are built to go be apostles somewhere all over the world. Some of us are called to be missions, missionaries, though, that's, a, that's for, uh, for sure. But, um, but you see him. I mean, if you don't see it in this text, you can just go read the book of Acts. And, and you'll see a man whose life, he's not just saying the truth, he's not just arguing the truth, he's living it out. If you read the Corinthians and his whole talk about the thorn in the flesh, you see a man who is wrestling his own, through his own journey of spiritual growth. His own relationship with God is transforming the way that he lives. And it's coming out in, in where he puts his body, where he travels to, what he eats, who he talks to. He's a guy whose walk matches God's word. And that is why he is successful in that metric of seeing stories of life change. Does that make sense? And so his means of success in this mission was his own bold walk that matched God's bold word. Well, I want to give you two warnings along those lines, though, that I think are pertinent for us as we consider that fact. The question, does my walk match my word? And the first warning comes from a buddy of mine. Uh, he was a United States Marine. He's a leatherneck. Any Marines in the room? All right. Uh, well, okay. Well, he was. Uh, and uh, I remember. Uh, he was a guy who, in the second Gulf War conflict, he was on the tip of the spear of our offensive, moving up the Tigris and Euphrates rivers toward Baghdad. He was a guy who was right at the front of that. And I remember when he came back from that conflict and was resettling, and, you know, we got to connect and talk a bunch. He told me a ton of crazy stories and stuff. But one of the things that stood out in our conversations was when he quoted the commandant of the Marine Corps, the 29th commandant, uh, General Alfred M. Gray, who said that every Marine is first and foremost a rifleman. What that means is that whether you're a colonel or a cook in the Marine Corps, you had better know how to handle your rifle. You better know where your rifle is, that it's in good condition. And that's one of the benefits in the Marine Corps is that you know that no matter who you're standing next to, when everything goes bonkers out in the field of battle, it doesn't matter if it's a cook or it's a commandant. There's a competent person next to you executing on the mission. Every Marine is a rifleman first. And let me just say something to you that I think Paul would convey to you, that every believer is a gospel speaker first. See what's the the warning is this is that when you hear us talk about your gifts, uh, I wouldn't take back one word of it. But it's easy to talk about gifts and to say I'm a uh, my gift is service, my gift is behind the scenes. I'm uncomfortable in front of people, and to, and and I do the same thing often, believe it or not. And 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 to kind of relegate ourselves to say, hey, my contribution to the to the initiative of the mission of God, bringing people close to Jesus, is behind the scenes, as though that exempts us from being individuals who can form words with our mouths to the people in front of us about and. Test Testify to the truth of God's presence in my life, how I came to know him as my savior, what that means and where in scripture I can point you so that you can have a relationship with Jesus too. Sharing your faith. And so, well, yes, some of us are gifted as evangelists. The scripture makes that clear. That just means you're like ultra nuclear powered and capable on a level that's awesome. But I have found that evangelists are hard to find. People who raise their hand and say, I'm a gifted evangelist. Uh, And often, well, anyway, that's a whole other conversation. What I'm telling you is that what I think Scripture is telling all of us, and that is that, yes, it may not be your spiritual gift, but it is your rifle. Every believer is a gospel sharer first, whether you're the lead pastor or any other role in a church. God has made you a vessel of the truth of his presence in your life. Can you verbalize? Can I verbalize in any way? It doesn't have to be masterful. It doesn't have to be incredible. But can you verbalize the gospel to the people around you? Every believer is a gospel sharer first. And the second warning is this, that an apologist who doesn't demonstrate ongoing life change is confusing and unhelpful. We talk about a word that matches our walk. An apologist who doesn't demonstrate life change is confusing and unhelpful. What's an apologist? An apologist is somebody who is super capable of answering the hard questions of the faith. Why does God let bad things happen to good people? So an apologist is somebody who has a really well thought through answer to that question. And I think there is a really good answer to that. It's a hard one, but it's a good one. Um, you know, who can, who can speak to the culture's accusations against Christians as though somehow what some bonehead over did over here in the name of Jesus applies to all of us. Right? An apologist is somebody who can give a good answer for their faith. The trouble is when an apologist, and there are a lot of us out there who have good answers, who love a good argument, who can get down into it with somebody and hold their own in even the most deep and difficult philosophical or theological conversations, but then they go home and they treat their wife like dirt. You follow? Or they fail to love the way that God loves. An apologist who has the answers but whose life does not demonstrate the presence of God and the presence of God's word and the love of God for the people around them is actually a liability, not an asset. It creates confusion. You follow? Have you seen this? Out in the world, out in the wild? Lord, help us to not be that. You can't just have the word and fail to have the walk and believe that you will somehow be effective in the mission. Amen? So that I exhort you, Emmanuel. Yes, have the answers, but let them change you so that your walk matches your word. A couple more observations. Fourth observation is that Paul's power for progress came from the Holy Spirit. Romans fifteen nineteen, he says, By the power of the Spirit of God, just a simple observation, and that is this, that your effectiveness, my effectiveness, our effectiveness in the mission that God has given us is not rooted in our skill, our ability, our budgets, our buildings, any of it. It's rooted in the power of God's Spirit moving. That's what Paul makes clear. All the cool things he did that we would say wow about and all the things we wouldn't say wow about but were really important that Paul did. All of his effectiveness in seeing stories of life change was rooted in God's spirit moving. He was a prayer warrior. He was dependent. And his confidence was rooted in the presence of God, not his own skills. That's an encouragement for any of us in the room who are insecure. And it's a call to humility for any of us in the room who are not a little insecure (laughs) in our mission. And finally this, that Paul's passion for his calling was rooted in the experience of walking out God's word. That corollary between God's word and his walk starts with God's word. His passion is rooted in God's word. Okay, I just want to make a really cool observation that it would be easy to miss. In 1521, near the end of our passage, Paul says, "...as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand." What he's doing there is he's quoting a verse from Isaiah chapter 52, verse 15. A super cool passage written 600 years before Jesus about how God was going to. He promised, he prophesied in advance that at some point in this broken world was going to see a Savior. and That Savior was going to create good news for everybody that would go out to all nations. It was a promise, not just that we would have a Savior, but that the whole world would hear about this Savior. And have an opportunity to come into relationship with him and find life. It's this crazy cool promise. And Paul's drawing passion from it. But I want to show you something. If you rewind in Romans to chapter 10, verse 15, you'll see another verse from Isaiah. He wrote, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. 600 years before Jesus, the Bible promises that God would give us good news and that he would send people to the world to share that good news in Christ. What I want to point out is is if you look at Isaiah 52.7, what Paul quoted in chapter 10, and you look at Isaiah 52.15, you see, the, you see the, the beginning and the end of this prophetic move that Isaiah makes. I put it on the back of your notes if you want to read it in, in full. And this is the one thing I simply want to say to you. Paul was doing his devotions. You want to know what Paul was studying when he wrote the book of Romans that fired him up? Isaiah 52. I think he was studying a lot of things. But you want to know what Paul was, was studying constantly? The word that he had in front of him that was fueling his passion for the mission? Do you want to know why Paul was so excited and so impassioned and so bold and so focused? It's because he was putting God's word into his heart constantly. He was wrapping his heart around God's heart. And God's heart around his heart by spending time with Jesus, by spending time with the Lord in God's word. You do that long enough. You do that regularly enough, and you will have a laser focus. You will have a sense of God's passion for the world. That this isn't about oppressing the world to submit to God. This is about sharing the love of God. You'll understand that if you spend time in God's Word, daily devoting and pressing it into His life. And so, Paul, as a minister, when it comes to, or as a, as a model for us, when it comes to mission, what he's modeling for us here is that he was pressing God's heart into his heart by pressing God's word into his heart. Amen? So let me just call you, Emmanuel. If you're at all confused or you're just not sure about this mission or you're not motivated about the mission, the root of the the shift is going to be in spending time in God's word. It will fire you up the way that it fired Paul up. So Paul's passion is rooted in a walk that is rooted in God's word. And he's living it out. So yeah, I learned from my brother Jesse to read widely and read deeply. And guess what we see Paul doing in God's words. He's reading widely and he's reading deeply in a way that informs everything. And yeah, I learned from my brother Ben to do hard things. And guess what we see Paul showing us as a model older brother. Do hard things. Emmanuel. It's not a call to shame it's not an oppressive push saying swagging the finger saying you're not good enough that's not at all what's going on it's an invitation it's that hand on the shoulder saying you've got this you're full of goodness in Christ you have his word and you are able to sharpen one another you are able to live into everything Paul has written that's our call so what do we do with that I've got I've got two quick applications and an encouragement for you Manuel. you ready two quick applications when we think about Paul's model for us as a ministry, as a minister, model for ministry, I want you to just work at discovering and leveraging your gifts. I won't beat on this much because, again, we, had, we spent a lot of time talking about it a few weeks ago. But that QR code, if you scan it, it's in your notes. It will take you to that same test, the spiritual gifts test we gave you a while back. And I would just say, look, if you just got caught having not even done that and still not knowing your gifts, welcome to a no-shame environment. You are okay in grace. But let me just spur you on to let's get after it. What that will do is it'll just, it's just a simple test that will help you to kind of get a sense of maybe areas to focus on and then begin tinkering with. If it says you love service, great, go find ways to serve. If it says you love teaching, let's talk. If it says you, know, you, love, uh, you have discernment, awesome, how could you leverage that? Bring those questions to a group of a community of people around you and start finding ways to begin bringing to bear the gifts that God's given you for this body and for this world. And the second application is this, to simply start a spiritual conversation. (laughs) I didn't say share the gospel in its entirety with perfection, did I? Did you hear me say that? Sometimes people will hear me say that when I didn't really say that. All I'm saying is take your next faithful step and try this week to start a spiritual conversation. If you have no idea what that looks like, let me give you a couple suggestions. One is in your notes. It's just simply whether you're in the checkout line or uh, you're talking to your waiter or you run into somebody you haven't seen in forever that you kind of know, but don't really, or you're talking to your neighbor. Hey, do you have a faith? I mean, maybe you warm up with some other small talk first, but, but, (laughs) but just walk up. Excuse me, sir. Uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't shame you for that. But, but when the time is right, just simply, Hey, do you have a faith? It's a, it's a sneaky, effective question. It's a sneaky uh, question that is not offensive. The answer could be no. And that's fine. Awesome. Tell me more. Why is that? Where'd that you know, did you come up that way or did you come to that conclusion? Just see where it goes. Just ask that question and see where God takes it. You, half of us will probably get totally shut down awkwardly. Well, great. Awesome. Let's try again with someone else. That QR code there, if you scan it, it's going to give you a, a really cool, encouraging resource. And you're going to get to hear a guy share the gospel in two minutes in depth, in detail, just to prove to you that it's simple enough. You can share the gospel in just two minutes. If a a, do you have a faith conversation turns into, well, let me, can I explain where I come from? And you have a chance to share the gospel. There's scripture, there's a simple sequence, and he actually does the bridge illustration, which is really cool. Just to show you, it doesn't have to be overwhelming. Every believer is a gospel conduit first. And so let me encourage you, if you don't feel like you could lead someone to Jesus, if someone came to you right now and says, I want to have a relationship with Jesus, how do I do that? Then, hey, step one, start working that direction. Maybe you work on memorizing some of that scripture. But let me just encourage you. Do you have a faith? Another simple thing you can do with your waiter or waitress. When they come to take your order, you give them the order. You say, hey, we're about to pray for our meal. Is there anything I can pray for? Sneaky effective. Sneaky helpful. Sneaky loving. No conditions. Just love people with the gospel. Amen? Amen?